Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skide af alle de der podcasts og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lytte til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel. back in the Blair years, was a deputy prime minister. I won't identify other than to call him John. (laughs) And this John had a tendency to ramble. And we had a total disaster with him laying aside his script. And off he went into some verbal world of his own devising. And you can imagine how awful it was. Nobody knew what, what the subject was, never mind what he talked about. So after that, I said to him, at the behest of the Prime Minister, I said, I've got to help you, John. What you should do is we'll, we'll start the speech by telling the audience how many points you've got to make before you start. Then at least we know where we are. I thought that might discipline him to like, have a structure. And he said, oh, thanks, that's really good advice. And the next morning, he got up before a massive audience in the QE2 Centre in Westminster. He said, good morning, everybody. I have 49 points to make. <laughs> I still remember the, 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 the immortal words, and therefore 38thly. <laughs> It can go horribly wrong. Given that you just talked then about the, the opening of a speech, how presumably that's very important, setting the tone right, hooking people in. And I know from having done comedy stuff in the past that you need to quite early on just reassure an audience they're in safe hands, That's that you right. know what you're doing. I, I think it's very much like a comic routine. I think it's very much like it. I mean, I've written sort of cabaret scripts before, and I think it's quite similar. I think it's quite similar to writing a column too, which is, uh, you know, you, you get your best gag, and you know you've either got to start with it or end with it, because <laughs> that's what you do, don't you? And in between, you, you move between them. And it's very similar with the, with the speech, because what you've got to do is establish it. And you've got to have it in miniature. It's like a still in, a, in Hollywood films. You know, the, the, the old script writing books used to tell you that what you should do is summarize the film in the first still. And there are still some films that do that. You know, I, I remember going to see The Usual Suspects with, a, with my then girlfriend, and I ruined it by telling her straight away who'd done it. <laughs> I'm, I'm no longer with her. Um, because I could tell from the opening still, because it had it all there. And if you know that, then it ruins it. But that's what you're trying to do in a speech. You're setting it up very well. And as you say, you've got to make sure that you're in safe hands. Now, one of the key things about a speech is nobody wants to sit through a long, boring speech. Making your point briefly and quickly can have much more effect. There's no better example of this than Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. The Gettysburg Address is a remarkable piece of of thought and speech. And it's more remarkable for the fact that Lincoln didn't deliver the Gettysburg Address. 
the actual Gettysburg Address was delivered by a man called Edward Everett. And he was a renowned orator of his time. Not now, completely lost to most of us. And he was slated to do the main speech at Gettysburg, which was the, the site of a Civil War battle, the only site in the North. And they're there to commemorate the war dead. It's exactly like Pericles in the Peloponnesian War. He's doing the eulogy. And Everett speaks for about two and three quarter hours. And it's incredibly ornate, flowery stuff, and nobody remembers a word of it. And Lincoln came on at the end and did essentially like parish notices. It was all but inaudible. No one, no one knew what he'd said, really. And it was an extraordinary encapsulation of the idea of the people. And it's an idea of the people which comes from Cicero. So I start this whole chapter by looking at Cicero's idea of the Roman Republic. And the idea of the Roman Republic is that the, the citizen had to participate in politics. The Greek idea was that the, the citizen would be at leisure, and it was a leisured pursuit, whereas for Cicero, it was participation of the ordinary person, the ordinary man, as it was at the time. And that idea of participation comes all the way through into the American Republic. So you find it in Jefferson. You find it in the, the, the founding papers of the American Republic. It's full of classical tags. It's full of references to Cicero. And you also find it then in... The, the, the sentiment, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. You find it in the idea of the, the better state of the Commonwealth, which is Cicero's title, it, the perfect state of the Union. It's Obama as well. So you get it all the way through. But the pivotal figure in all of this, to whom everybody refers, is Abraham Lincoln. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation, or any nation so conceived and so dedicated, can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But, in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here but it can never forget what they did here. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead, we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. That this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. And that is the whole speech. That's it. There's how much he gets said in 272 words. It's remarkable. It's uh, astonishing. And that becomes the, the template for all American speech. And so when Kennedy is doing his inaugural in 61, he instructs Ted Sorensen to read the Gettysburg Address. And Sorensen comes back and, and does two things. Firstly, he excises all long words from the inaugural. And second, he says, we've just got to make it short. So they cut it, and it's the shortest inaugural address in presidential history. And there's a, 
sort of coda to the Gettysburg Address. Every American president since Lincoln has made a Gettysburg Address because they all go there and they do what Lincoln does. He heard what he did there. He went from the funeral, the eulogy to the actual dead from the Civil War, which is quite perfunctory. And then he, he leaped straight to the idea of the American Republic. He attributes the cause of their death. He says they died for this cause. He doesn't know whether they did or not, but that's what he's saying. And that beginning he does, four score years and 10, I thought when I started, well, that's just a very lyrical way of saying the date. Uh, it's much more than that. What he's doing, he takes you back not to the, um, to the uh, Constitution, but to the Declaration of Independence. And so what he's saying in that date, in like four words, what he's saying is slavery. He never mentions the word slavery in, that, in this whole speech. It's all about slavery. He's saying that this war has to be fought for a more noble purpose. And you find this in every war speech. It has to be fought for a high, elevated purpose. And he does it in a date. And everybody listening would have known that. And yet we've lost that. So I, I was excavating all the time trying to find that. Everybody goes back to Gettysburg and does a sort of cover version of the Gettysburg Address. The, the only exception was Kennedy. In, the, in 1963, the centenary of Gettysburg was due, and Kennedy was there down to do the event. And he had to ask Dwight Eisenhower, who lived on a farm in Gettysburg, to stand in for him and deliver the centenary address, because Kennedy, unfortunately, had to go to Dallas on important party business, and he never came back. And then the next notable Gettysburg address is in the last election campaign. Donald Trump goes to Gettysburg, where Lincoln put into 272 words the most beautiful evocation of politics you can imagine. Trump spent 55 minutes calling Hillary Clinton a criminal and the American <laughs> Republic corrupt and the media. And it was just the most egregious load of nonsense. And to have done that anywhere would have been terrible. But to go there, it's a graveyard. And he still did it. It was really quite astonishing. And the, you know, that was the moment I, I thought, this guy really doesn't have any boundaries. Some of the worst political speeches I have to sit through as a political journalist for the Times are the ones where someone is giving a speech without really knowing why they're giving it. Having something to actually say can make it all the more powerful. I have lost count of the number of people who've, said, who've come to me and said, can you make me a bit like Barack Obama? And I say, let me count the ways in which you're not like Barack Obama. <laughs> One, you're not Barack Obama. Two, you're not president of the United States of America. And three, you're not a president who's a black man in an era when people still remember segregated cities. Now, there's a story. There's a story. And th this is, sort of brings me to the, the first, first component of what makes a great speech, which is there has, you have to have an argument of something quite momentous. You have to have a big argument. You have to have, really have something to say which is going to last. It can't be a second-order thing. It's got to be massive. And the clip we've got coming up now is Nelson Mandela in the, in the court, in the dock, in um, the Rivonia trials, it's known, in Pretoria. And he's, he's pleading for his life. It is a struggle of the African people, inspired by their own suffering and their own experience. It is a struggle for their right to live. During my lifetime, I have dedicated myself to this struggle of the African people, I have fought against white domination, and I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal which I hope to live for and to achieve. 
but if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. Now, an ideal for which I'm prepared to die. You can't say that in a speech on housing benefit. You can't say that if you're on second, just after lunch at the local government chronicle, because it's going to sound ridiculous. So you've got to have the weight of events. You've got to have something momentous and serious. And Mandela was under threat of a death sentence. It was expected that he would, be, he would receive a death sentence, and he was pleading for his life. But he does so rather brilliantly because he doesn't, it's not a plea in the derogatory sense of that term. He, he offers a thorough renunciation of the idea that he's a communist. It's a Cold War speech, most of it, which precedes that. It's all about the fact that the ANC is not communist. He goes into an extended routine about how respectful he is of the constitutional traditions of America and Britain, and he goes into great detail on it, immense learning, and it is a beautiful and brilliantly rendered piece of constitutional argument. And what he's saying is that we, the black men, are perfectly capable of living within the ambit of a democratic society, and that you are disparaging us by saying, by the, the, the umbrella term communist under which you are smuggling in a lot of racial epithets. And it's an extraordinary thing, which builds brilliantly over a long time to that conclusion. And when you get there, it, it's not melodramatic. And any other use of elevated language like that is always melodramatic if you haven't got the moment. Next, we moved on to talking about timing. Sometimes a great orator just needs to wait for their moment in history to come along, and this couldn't be more true of Winston Churchill. It's no coincidence that many of the best speeches have ever been delivered are either in the aftermath of a war, like Pericles and, and Lincoln, or they're in time of war, like Elizabeth or the next one, which is Churchill. It's impossible to write or talk about rhetoric for long without getting to Churchill, who is really the great, certainly in the Anglo-Saxon world, the great figure in rhetoric. And, you know, I will say a bit more about it. So let's hear the, the, the clip from the, uh, the speech from 1940, the finest hour. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister, and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty, and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. Now, Churchill had been waiting all his life to say this. <laughs> Churchill is the greatest student of oratory who is also a practitioner, the greatest in Cicero who was both, and Churchill was both. Churchill was obsessed by speaking and by rhetoric. He was a young subaltern in the Indian Army. He wrote a book called The Scaffolding of Rhetoric, but he could never take the scaffolding down. There's a couple of really comical examples of how you can see him working phrases up over the course of his career. So in 1899, he's in Oldham, and he's the young, 24-year-old by-election candidate for the Liberal Party. And there's a gathering in a church hall of about 17 people. And he says, never before in the history of England have so many people had so little to eat. <laughs> sort of. 
And nine years later, he's in Africa as a junior minister, and he's in the unveiling of an irrigation scheme. And there's about six or seven people standing around a hole in the ground. And he says, never before in the history of Africa has so much water been held up by so little masonry. <laughs> and it's, it's just rubbish, isn't it? And then, then all of a sudden, you get in the, after the Battle of Britain, he, get, he gets to stand in the House of Commons. He says, never before in the field of human conflict has so much been owed by so many to so few. And it's just magnificent. It's not just that the cadence is better, although it is, because he's finally got the rule of three. Because <laughs> like, that's like a basic. It's really weird why two is unsatisfying. With two, it feels like the melody hasn't been resolved. If you say it four times, the audience immediately feels patronized. You think, yeah, yeah, I know. I know, I got it before. Three, we're hardwired somehow to sound lovely. And that cadence is beautiful. But of course, the important point is that he's talking about the war. He's talking about the future of Western civilization. And suddenly, all of that work he's put in all down the years just rhymes with the moment. And it's a beautiful series of speeches in 1940. They're, they're quite astonishing. You, there's a great line, actually, in the book where you say, never before or since did the speaker lavish so much high-octane rhetoric on so few subjects to warrant it. Yeah. <laughs> he was sort of almost crying out for a war to, he, so that the events rose to the, yes, the occasion of he his was. speeches. He, he was regarded as a, as a rather comical <clears throat> figure prior to that because everybody thought of him as someone who couldn't help but declaim all the time. He used to make speeches all the time. So you go around for dinner with Churchill and he'd, he'd do a long speech, which he'd written before. He was, he was kind of obsessed with it. And he had this huge compendium of, of literary quotes in his head. And he, he was a ludicrous figure, um, <laughs> rhetorically. And then, but then all of a sudden, the, the drama was sufficient for him. And he was a long way from being a ludicrous figure. He was an extraordinary figure. And to some extent, he, he was sort of the first media prime minister because he delivered these extraordinary speeches in the House of Commons, and then he went back to Downing Street, all the cabinet war rooms, and he recorded them again yeah, so they could right. be broadcast. And so you, although you say in the book that David Lloyd George was unrivaled as a sort of rhetorical genius, nobody heard them unless they were in the room with him. Yeah. Whereas he, Churchill was able to speak to the whole country. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's right. I, I came to discover that, that. There are two reasons we don't know of Lloyd George's speeches, and we don't regard them in the same rank as Churchill's. One is the appreciation of the war. The Great War doesn't have the same sort of resonance as the Second World War. It's a, less, it's a more complicated war. It's, it's less obviously a just war than the Second World War. That's one reason. But I think the main reason is that Lloyd George didn't have the wireless, and Churchill did. So Churchill we have recordings of, and Lloyd George we don't. And Lloyd George has this extraordinary resonant voice, um, a bit like Anurin Bevan later, a bit like Neil Kinnock. But he, he's, not, he's lost to posterity, and, and he's more ornate. The, the, the media changes rhetoric again, just as we, they did um, the field of Gettysburg, that Roosevelt in America is the first radio um, president, and then Reagan later is the first proper television president, the first one to really know how to address a television camera. And Churchill does that for the wireless, because as you say, he, he goes from the House of Commons, he goes over to the BBC and he records them. He was always very grumpy about doing it, he hated it. Um, and in fact, people wrote in to the BBC after he'd done them and said they thought he, the Prime Minister was drunk. And the, he wasn't drunk for once. He, what he actually did was he, he recorded them with a cigar in his mouth. <laughs> so he, he sounded very funny, but he, was, he wasn't drunk. He, just, he, was, he refused to take his cigar out because he was so annoyed at having to deliver them. But they, that, I think, has been very important in the, in the way we think of 
of Churchill because we, we, can, we can hear it now still and it sounds so, so resonant. The very best political speeches, at least, are the ones that try to bring about some sort of change, to to rally people to a cause, to do something rather than just talk about it, and to tackle a social injustice of some kind. And one of the best examples of that is obviously Martin Luther King. You can't write a great speech unless there's something, some big injustice that you're answering, or naming at least, or preferably answering. You, you can do good speeches and all that without that, but you can't do anything which is going to last. So the, the classic instance is the one we're going to play in a moment, which is Martin Luther King. Um, and again, there's a great story about this, uh, which, which will make you listen to this differently. It's quite a long clip I want to play you, but it's, it's important to, to know this before you hear it which is that in the, in the run-up to the March on Washington, the advisors to Martin Luther King were absolutely adamant that he was not going to do that boring dream thing again. They'd done it so many times around the circuit that you're always doing the dream riff. Martin Luther King used to assemble speeches because he, he was a preacher. He would have routines and he'd have a little bit and he'd, he'd do them differently each time, but it would essentially be like jazz. You know, themes would, and refrains would come around again. And they said, we've heard that so often, we've got to write a proper speech. So they wrote a whole speech called a cancelled check for the March on Washington. And the first 12 minutes before the thing we're about to hear are a cancelled check. And it's fine. It's okay. I mean, it's, I, I, having, having read it in the book, I'd say it's, all, I mean, it's almost it's, not fine. It's, it's almost not fine, isn't there's it? A, there's a long extended metaphor about a check. Yeah, it's not good, is it? it doesn't, not being cashed. And, it, it's, and it doesn't work, no. does it? No, it really doesn't work. And it, it's, it's not heavy enough. It's not big enough to bear the weight of what it's doing. And the audience gets this, as they always do. The audience is not receiving it well. It's, it's, it's very flat. King's on last at the end of a very long bill, and it's very hot. Behind him on the podium, there's a gospel singer called Mahalia Jackson who, who used to travel with the Martin Luther King entourage. And she's heard him deliver the, the dream refrain in Detroit. And she says, tell them about the dream, Martin. Tell them about the dream. So he lays aside his script and he starts to do what we're about to hear. So what you need to know is that he's doing this off the top of his head. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day, down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day, right there in Alabama, Little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope, and this is the faith that I go back to the South with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation 
into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. And this will be the day. This will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, My country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so, let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And when this happens, and when we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. It is all the more extraordinary because he was doing it off the top of his head. But in a way, that meant it sounded like he was talking, which yeah. is what all pre-written, scripted, auto-cues speeches are pretending to do. That's, that's right. It's, it's a very important point that what you're trying to mimic is ordinary speech. It's ordinary speech with all the bad bits edited out. And the extraordinary thing he's capable of doing there is editing himself as he talks. Because we've all done it. You, you start a speech by saying, oh, I've got four points, and then halfway through, you've forgotten the fourth one. Um, and he doesn't miss a beat. It's extraordinary. The rhythm of it is beautiful. It's so contained. And he ends it so well. One of the hardest things to do when you're speaking extempore is to end well. I've seen so many speeches where people say, well, right, OK, uh, anyway, thanks. Any questions? And it just, it kills the effect. And he ends with this beautiful quotation, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty we're free at last. It's extraordinary. I, I've done lots of training routines. So I've, got, I've had people in the Northampton Ring Road Travel Lodge, um, the regional sales force of a company, reading that out between them and in, in tears because it's so spine-tinglingly good. It's incredible. It's all biblical, of course. I mean, the king's language is incredibly ornate because it all comes from the Bible. Obama, who in many ways resembles Martin Luther King in his delivery style, has a much plainer language. If you read an Obama speech out yourself, it doesn't really take off because it requires his voice. In particular, his pauses. Obama's brilliant at pausing. Obama's silences are better than most people's words. <laughs> 
What he doesn't have is Martin Luther King's biblical idioms, but he does it in a different way. But in, in, in a sense, they're the same, because there's a call and response rhythm to it, which comes from the, from the Baptist churches. The thing that really struck me when I, when I read it, and you're hearing it again then, is how when he's describing the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, the mighty mountains of New York, he's got a different adjective for hills and valleys off the top of his head for yeah. all those different... You know, it'd be quite... You'd forgive him if there was a, you know... You would. He just started listing places. We would. It, now, now, that's I mean, the sort of thing that a speechwriter would spend ages working on. That's right, you would. And, and that's what, what is so wonderful about it. Because, I mean, as I said before, he has done this before because he's done a similar thing before. But he's never quite done it in exactly this this way before. And you would expect there to be a some unsolicitous repetition every now and then. But there isn't. You look, you look at it back and it's exactly as he might write it. In the delivery, if you go onto YouTube and watch it, you see a couple of moments where he hesitates, where he stops, and there's a brief moment of thinking time, which when you're on the podium looks like an eternity. And you can tell then, if you know, that he hasn't got an autocue. You can tell he's just thinking, oh, what do I say next? Um, but in the written script, it's absolutely fluid and perfect. It really is an astonishing achievement to be able to do that. And from your background as a speechwriter, how bad is it normally if somebody puts their speech to one side and thinks, it's, I'm just going to wing it? I cannot tell you how catastrophically bad it all is. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmannen. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skidt af alle de der podcasts og forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmakker. 1992 and uh, he's writing uh, about the Peloponnesian War soon after he dies. You know, Cicero does a great set of speeches, the Philippics in the Forum. He ends up with his head nailed to the rostrum. And you sort of have to conclude, if you've got your hand cut off and your head nailed to the rostrum, it could have gone a bit better. <laughs> Did the letters stay on the backdrop? <laughs> well, he didn't cough. Um, so, no, often, often they don't win the day. And, and Kinnock's a really good, interesting example. I've had a number of people at events ask me, why have you included Kinnock in a collection of the greatest speeches? To which my answer is, well, I'm not saying they're the greatest speeches. I've chosen speeches which, which illustrate my five themes, the five virtues of politics. And I wanted Kinnock partly because he meant a lot to me. And I think he also, Kinnock was able to, to put into beautiful words something that matters a lot in British society, which is the idea of coming from a you know, unpromising background and making it. And Kinnock, with his great speech, Why Am I the Kinnock in, in a Thousand Generations, to make it to university, did that. It was an incredibly moving speech, and it shows the power of words. And I do think Kinnock was a fabulous speaker um, who was not, therefore, a great politician. 
So there is a gap between those two things. And that, that question runs through the whole book. Because you start with Cicero in De Oratore makes the case that speaking and statecraft are the same thing. He says that these two things are not separate. They're exactly the same. Whereas Kinnock shows you they're not quite, that there is a, there is a gap. Uh, and there are poor speakers who have been good politicians. I don't have a Thatcher speech in here, um, but she's not a great speaker. You know, technically, she's not, not, a, not an adept speaker, really. But she makes good arguments, and she employs good speech writers, and she's highly effective. And so there are differences between those two things. But, but, but ultimately, in a democracy, persuasion is the currency. And that's why this is a book about liberal democracies. It's because in a tyranny, there are lots of speeches, but their purpose is quite different. It's to command people or to tell them what is. It's not to persuade. And it's only in democracies that you use words in order to persuade people around to a point of view. So that's why this is also a story of democracy. The two stories of rhetoric and democracy begin with Pericles in 431 BC, and they run in parallel all, all the way through. Almost anyone can give a bad speech. Not everyone can give a great one, and even fewer politicians are able to tell jokes. As Phil Collins explains, it's even harder when the joke has been written by someone else. Comedy is the only art form where you're asking for a reward all the time, aren't you? And that's why it's so scary. That's why you die up there. That's why we corpse. The language of death and the language of comedy are, are fraternal. And in a speech, what you're trying to do is to establish early on that you are fine and that you can cope. And you want some claps early on to get the atmosphere up. And comedy in speeches is really difficult. And I'm always asked by unfunny people, can you make me funny? And I say, well, no, I can give you jokes. I can give you lines. I'll give you another example, which unfortunately, again, is the same person in Muslim prison. Um, but, but I have to say that this anecdote, is, it was entirely my fault. I, I gave him uh, what was a, a standard speechwriter's opening, uh, which I've used many times, and it works really well. If you've got a speech which is two separate ideas, two, two arguments from different premises, uh, it, work, it sets it up perfectly. It's an apocryphal story, but it works. It's said to be of Dr. Johnson, who was in his house just off um, Fleet Street in, in Gough Square. And it's very narrow streets there. And he saw two women on opposite sides of the streets leaning out of their windows, hitting each other with sticks. And he's reputed to have said to Boswell, Boswell, those two women will never agree because they are arguing from different premises. <laughs> right? Usually you get a good laugh first time around. <laughs> what he did... <laughs> was he set it up perfectly. He went through the whole thing. I was really worried about the setup, so I wrote it so carefully and made him learn it. But I didn't give him the punchline. And what he did, he did the setup perfectly. And then he said, Boswell, those two women will never agree because they're arguing from different buildings. <laughs> <laughs> Which doesn't make any sense at all. And the whole of the rest of the speech with references to Johnson and Boswell meant nothing. So. That was my fault because I was giving a gag to someone who was, that was not the sort of thing he would say. Yeah. Uh, and trying to wrench comedy out of something that wasn't intrinsically funny. And so the lesson I learned is that if humor arises out of the writing, that's great. But if it doesn't, it's fine. Yeah. You're not there to be Billy Connolly. 
You know, you, it's fine to be decorous, to use Cicero's term, to be decorous is to respect the setting, respect the occasion. And so if you've got a serious subject, be serious. We did a podcast on comedy in politics. Uh, and we talked to uh, some comedians, of all we Bremner and uh, Al Murray, but we, I also spoke to three speechwriters who used to work for Nick Clegg and Ed Miliband. And uh, James McGorry, who used to work for Nick Clegg, said he had lost count of the number of perfectly good jokes that had died a sad and horrible death at the end of yeah. the hands of Nick Clegg. Even he admits Terrible. he can't tell a joke. No, 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 most politicians can't. I remember writing one for, for Jack Straw in the days when Michael Howard was the Home Secretary, it was going back a bit, and Howard had gone through a series of occasions when he was in the courts because the government kept breaking the law. And um, so he gave this joke to Jack Straw, which is um, simply, it was a very simple one. He said, Let, let's, let's imagine a criminal and let's call him Michael. <laughs> and then you leave it there. What Jack did was he said, let's imagine a criminal. Let's call him Michael. That's Michael Howard, the Home Secretary. <laughs> Tumbleweed. Explaining a yeah. joke. What because I... I, owe, I owe my whole career, really, to a joke. I mean, my, my only great moment as a speechwriter was a gag. Because in the 2006 Labour conference, Blair's last conference speech, the night before, Gordon Brown, Cherie Blair had said something very disobliging about Gordon Brown. And she denied having said it, but we knew she had. And <laughs> it was all over the... But she did deny it for the purpose. She did of deny it, but it was obvious. obvious. I mean, even if yeah. she hadn't said it, she thought it. Um, <laughs> and you're, you're going to court, not me. <laughs> It was all over the evening's news and it was all over the following morning's newspapers. And Blair spoke the next day, so we realised we had to deal with this in some way. And the obvious way to diffuse something is with a joke. And so I thought, I, th I kept thinking, well, it's got all the elements of music hall because it's the guy next door and it's his wife. It's got a sort of a Les Dawson, Arthur Askey feel to it. Uh, so I looked up a whole load of jokes and I found this old Les Dawson gag, which was, my wife's just run off with the guy next door and I'm really going to miss him. <laughs> and I, and I, I, told, I told that to Blair, and he said, well, I can't say that, because it's not true. <laughs> said, we'd be delighted if he buggered off. Um, but we thought it's got the basic elements, so we customised it, and we, we, he ended up saying, at least she won't run off with the guy next door, which had this incredible effect. There was like double-page spread in the newspaper the next day about the joke. And the, the thing about the joke was that it conceded the point that we smuggled in the concession that, in fact, she had said it, and he was a pain in the arse. But by not saying that explicitly, putting it in a joke, you're allowed to say something very serious. Yeah. And that's when comedy works really well, in comedy as well as in politics, is when it's, there's a real point in it. So let's pull it all together. How do you write a great political speech? Be brief, have something to say to bring about change. Picking your moment in history and making sure you've got some jokes. Wrap it all up, and as Phil Collins now explains, the secret to writing a great political speech lies in a knock-knock joke. One of, the, one of the skills of writing a speech is, is knowing how to end, as I said with Martin Luther King. And you can end on a, on a note of gravity, as I did just then. Um, <laughs> or you can try and lighten the mood, as I'm doing now. And so what I, th what I wanted to do, just to, to close, is... I wanted to illustrate how rhetoric is unchanged, how it's, the, it's lasted 20 centuries, and it's an extraordinary art form which is really not dissimilar from when Aristotle and Cicero wrote their manuals on it. And Cicero writes about the five sort of 
forms of rhetoric. And every single speech that's any good goes through these five phases. And what I want to do is to show you that that's true. I want to do a short speech, which is much shorter even than the Gettysburg Address. I want to then add in something that Martin Luther King adds to the history of rhetoric, which is a sort of call and response. What Martin Luther King does, he gets the audience involved. All that I have a dream stuff, and the audience says yes, and they, they are involved. So I'm going to involve you in this speech. So it's going to be shorter than Gettysburg. It's going to involve a Martin Luther King technique. It's going to adhere to the principles of Cicero, and it's going to be a searing critique of British policy towards the European Union. <laughs> now, you think I can't do all of that, but I can. And here we go. So you're very ready because you're important. You'll know the drill. Knock, knock. Yeah. Europe. Europe. No, Europe. <laughs> now, hang on, I haven't finished. Now, let me let's explain to you how that worked. Cicero says, what you begin is an introduction to get us going. Knock, knock. Right, we're all interested in the introduction. The second part of Cicero's five-part course is the, the narrative. Who's there? Starts the story. We're interested now. Third part is the body of the speech. Europe. That's what we're talking about. That's the topic. That's the thing Cicero says you must have. You get there halfway through the medium point of the speech. I would define the topic, Europe. Then we get the counterposition. You've got to have an argument within a speech. It can't just be a single flow. You've got to have someone arguing with you. So you said, Europe who? And then comes the refutation, the conclusion of the speech. No, Europe That is the perfect Ciceronian structure, which runs through everything. <laughs> there we are. Who knew from Cicero to a knock-knock joke? That brings us to the end of this special episode of the Red Box Podcast. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe on iTunes on your Android device so that future episodes land automatically. And sign up to my morning email, thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox to get the insider's guide of everything that's happening in politics when we get back to Westminster in the new year. My thanks to Phil Collins and to the audience at the Times Plus event. To attend similar events, you just need to be a Times subscriber and go to mytimesplus.co.uk. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skidesrætter alle de der podcast og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel.